We're glad that you're here on this Labor Day weekend. If you're on the lawn, welcome. Uh, what a beautiful day we have. And wherever you're uh, jumping, in, jumping in from online, uh, we hope that uh, it's a beautiful day for you wherever you're at as well. For the last several weeks, we've been in the gospel according to John. Hopefully it's been a good start for you. Hopefully it's maybe intrigued you to do some, uh, as I often say, when we're in a, a, a kind of a series related to a book of the Bible, I encourage you to maybe spend some time in your quiet time, in your devotional time, and kind of some personal study, do some extra. Uh, if you're part of a life group, whether it's virtual or in person right now, certainly you have that opportunity to do it on a weekly basis. But I always want you to know that uh, as, we, as we jump off in these messages and we have them, you know, the, the teaching time, uh, you can take that and take it deeper in your own uh, personal study. So we had covered chapter one and everything there, which, which, was, which was fantastic. And then last week we took the first half of chapter two. We saw that there was a wedding that took place in Cana of Galilee, right? According to chapter two, verse one. And we know that uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, was there. Uh, we knew Jesus was there and his disciples were there. Now, again, maybe it was that Mary was one of the hosts for the wedding. It could have been that it was just a good family friend of hers. Some people have suggested it's actually the writer of this gospel, John, his wedding. I, and and who, who's to say whose wedding it was? But someone knew uh, Jesus, his mom, and then the disciples were accompanying him. And remember, we had that, uh, as we think about those, those weddings that would have taken place in the ancient Near East to celebrate the happy couple, uh, I encourage you to think about your biggest, baddest, wildest, greatest wedding celebration that you've ever been to, and then you've got to multiply it. You got to multiply it because kind of that's the heart of what weddings were in that day as regardless of their economic means, that couple would have been treated as royalty, but it wasn't just for a day. As I told you, their wedding celebrations went for a week. So you at least got to multiply yours most likely by seven uh, to get to think about what this wedding might have been. But at some point in the wedding, whatever date it might have been, there was a little problem that came up, right? Remember the rabbis had a saying in that day, in the day in which Jesus lived, where they would say, without wine, there is no joy. And the problem was, uh, Jesus' mom went to him and said, hey, uh, they're out of wine. Jesus responded, his response was interesting in that he said, seemed to indicate, well, this is the wedding's problem. It's not my problem. And yet uh, she persisted, and, and at some level, Jesus decided to, be in, to get involved, and he told uh, the servants to take these ceremonial jar, these jars that were for ceremonial washing to fill them up with water or top them off or maybe pour out what was in and fill them back up. And then when the, he told them that, to take some water out of it and take it to the head waiter, and when the head waiter tasted it, the servants knew what had happened. He tasted it, and he said in verse 10, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people are drunk, the, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Why did Jesus do this? He didn't do this to legitimize the, the, the people's over-drinking at the party. Remember, I made that, clear, that point clear last week. That wasn't what this miracle was about. John tells us what the miracle was about. Verse 11 says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, remember John's going to give us seven signs, all which are pointing to the fact of who Jesus is, what his identity is. We're going to encounter this, uh, this word again in the text we're going to look at today. He did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. In doing so, he revealed his glory, right? He uncovered something, Fanarau. He un uncovered something which was previously hidden. And in that uncovering, his disciples believed in him. So the point we took, if you remember last week, was God's all about 
uncovering more and more of himself to us through the presence of his Holy Spirit, through the gathering of the community of saints, through the truth of his word. He is revealing his glory to us. Why? That we might deepen our faith in him, that we might take deeper steps of trust in him, that we might truly believe in him. So that was the first half half of chapter two. And we're going to start in verse 13 today. And so if you, as Emma mentioned, as she was uh, reading from, from the Psalms, uh, you can turn, if you want, on your device or in your Bible to John chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, if you are choosing a translation, if you want to follow along the same one I have, it'll be the Christian Standard Bible. So feel free to choose that one or whatever one you prefer, okay? Let me pray as we get started uh, in the next part of John 2. Father God, thank you for the incredible blessing And privilege it is to be here today. Whether we're here in person or gathering online, God, we know that you are with us. Your presence is among us. And God, as I I try to pray on nearly an every week basis, not in some perfunctory way, but because I I really want this, God, I, I pray that we wouldn't just have a little bit more information about the ancient Near East or or uh, the temple or or something about Jesus or Judaism that that wouldn't be the outcome of this passage today that we're looking at. But instead, that you would use your truth to change us, transform us, deepen our faith in your son. God, I pray that whatever I would share uh, would, would be from your heart and that nothing I share would simply be from stuff that's in my head. We pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. John 2.13 says, The Jewish Passover was near, not yet, but about to happen. The Jewish Passover, a celebration by the Jews where they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, it was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jesus' day, we just pause here for just a second. In Jesus' day, the expectation was if you were able and it was a reasonable distance. Now I understand that's a little bit subjective, like what is reasonable, Right. If, it were, if you were able and it was a reasonable distance, then you were expected, I'm going to give it a second. As sometimes you hear on TV, this is live TV, right? And uh, this, is, this is an outdoor service, so that might happen. Uh, so the, re- the, the, the expectation was that, again, reasonable distance, you had the means, you were expected to be at the Passover. It was one of those things that you were kind of like required, that's not, it's a, it's a little strong, but you were required to attend. Now, Jesus is from Galilee, and so depending on where he's coming from the region of Galilee, it probably would have been for him a trek of somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 to 80 miles. Remember, he's not hopping on a train, grabbing a quick flight, or getting in the car and driving 70 miles an hour to get there in an hour and 15 minutes, right? He's walking or using animals. And so it's a pretty significant investment for people from Jesus' region to come. The idea, though, was that it was, you were coming because this was a celebration of, our, uh, of the fact that we, uh, God delivered us from slavery many years ago from the nation of Egypt. Now, the, the tradition, Jewish tradition tells us that uh, to prepare for the, the Passover, uh, things got kind of addressed. So think about, you know, when a, when a city gets the Olympics, 
All right, like LA just released their, their kind of whole logo marketing kind of p- campaign. You might have seen it this week, LA. I think it's 2028 that they're going to host uh, the Summer Olympics. And so, so you, you know, you think about the Olympics and what happens in a city when the Olympics is coming. All of their infrastructure, they try to address, right? In fact, they do it to the extreme that in many times we find that many cities end up losing a boatload of money to be able to host the Olympics because they want everything to look good. You're on the world stage. Well, that's kind of what happened here for the Jewish Passover. All of the infrastructure was addressed. Roads, bridges, and et cetera. Everything, was, everything that kind of been let go, we know what it means to let roads go right here in the state of Michigan. <laughs> All that stuff was like patched up, cleaned up the best they could because Passover was happening. And when Passover happened, Jerusalem, which according to historians, 600,000, some suggest on the low side, on the high side, about a million people that lived there. So it was a major metropolitan area. When the Passover happened, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, and others suggest that over 2 million people were in the city at that time to celebrate Passover. So this was and is a big deal. Check it out. Continue with me there in, in verse 14. In the temple, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. So what's going on? Well, basically what's going on, a, a way to kind of summarize it is, as these, as these animals are for sale and as the money changers are there, I'm going to give you a little more, more detail on that. Basically, it's a pay-to-play environment. You come into play at at, at the temple. We are so glad to have you. In fact, the thing that we're really glad about is that you brought some money with you because we're going to capitalize on that. And so, again, think about going to an event. Think about going to a sporting event or going to a concert or going to some conference and you're in the city and you're walking up and on the streets, right? People are, are hawking, selling souvenirs and trinkets, something for you to commemorate your trip to this conference, to this game, to this concert, whatever it might be. Well, the same thing is happening as Jesus is walking the streets of Jerusalem as he gets to the temple. So he gets to the temple. He finds these people here. Now, All of the sacrifices in the temple were peddled by the sellers and the inspectors. Now listen to this. Rabbinical literature in Jesus' day tells us that inspectors spent 18 months on a farm learning to distinguish between a clean and an unclean animal. In fact, they even learned how to identify an animal that would one day become unclean. I don't know how they figured that out, but they somehow got training so they could. If the, expector, if the inspectors did not want to improve an animal, it could not be approved. And so what happened was extortion was very, very common. All of it was, and, and, and many of the, the modern day scholars who, who read the, the contemporary historians that, that lived at that time, many believed that Annas, the high priest, was behind this whole operation. In fact, there was a saying, this, this was a saying that people of that day called the temple the bazaars of Annas, the place where he was basically, as the high priest, was making an incredible living off making sure that people had the right animals. And again, he was, he was in, in bed financially with the, with the uh, inspectors and with the people, with, with, with the rabbis and everybody who was at any, had any part in making sure that the proper animals were sacrificed. They knew that the high priest actually sold the franchises for the money changing booths and for the stalls to sell the animals. 
So he is set and the entire temple is set to make an inordinate amount of money. How much money was in the temple? Well, just a few years before, there was a guy who took a lot of money from the temple. Historians tell us that in modern day money, now the commentary I was reading this on, it wasn't like a 2020 number. This was more like a 2010 number. $20 million was taken from the temple. When that happened, temple didn't really skip a beat. They had a $20 million heist from their coffers and it didn't really do much to (laughs) destroy their economic uh, kind of uh, portfolio. So there was this incredible sense of exploitation going on. Not only did it revolve around the animals and their connection to the inspectors and the high priest's connection to make sure that everybody was paid off and all these bribes and extortions so that the people had the proper animals, but also we have the money changing going on. Well, what's happening there? Well, when you come to the temple, in addition to any offering you want to give, any gift you want to give, and those things are not wrong, you had to pay something called a temple tax. Now, a temple tax, again, depending on the scholar, it amounted to somewhere in the neighborhood of about a day's wages, maybe even a little bit more for an, a day laborer. So in other words, you had to pay the equivalent of one full day's take-home salary to be able to go into the temple. That was known as the temple tax. But here's the thing. You're coming from where Jesus lived in Galilee. Oh, guess what? Your money's no good here. Yeah, that coin, it, it doesn't work. Well, yeah, we'd be happy to exchange your coin for you. Guess what? As we exchange your coin, it's going to cost you another day's wage. That's what's happening here. So the money, it's flowing. And again, think of it. Two million people all in one spot. They got to have this kind of animal. They have to have this kind of money. So if you're coming from anywhere in the world that has not already got the approved uh, half shekel temple tax and you need to change it out, there's a lot of people making a whole lot of money. So it is a pay-to-play environment. Now, that's sickening, right? That's exploitation. That's extortion. That's terrible. And Jesus says, you know what? I agree, this is terrible. And so what we're going to see in this pay-to-play environment is an unrivaled passion. Jesus is going to insist that there is a different priority for temple activity. Temple activity is not about making Annas the richest guy in the ancient Near East. It's not about making this building the most glorious thing in the entire ancient Near East. It's not about creating these under-the-table contracts between inspectors and sellers and money changers. Jesus is going to do something about it. So pick it up in verse 15. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, whoops, he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house. Notice he doesn't say our father's house at this point, right? Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, there is some suggestion. Some, uh, there are a few scholars who, who say they don't think that Jesus would have taken a whip of cords and actually came after people. Some people suggest he was driving the animals out with the whip of cords. And of course, they're, the, the, ones who were, the humans who were attending to those animals would have had to chase after them. Whether he was driving the animals out or the animals and the people all at once, the end result is still the same. Get them out of here. Get the animals out of here. Because again, some have suggested that's what offended Jesus, that it was the animals that were there. I think it wasn't just the fact the animals were there. 
It was the fact of what they were doing with the animals. So Jesus drives out those who were selling those animals. He drives out those who were, uh, who were uh, exchanging this money at this, at this high rate. And why did he do this? Well, look what it says in verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the original context of this is found in, in Psalm 69, verse 9, and it's spoken of by, uh, about David, but prophetically, its fulfillment is found in the person of Jesus. The word that we translate consume in English, in the Greek, it means to be eaten up by. In the original Hebrew, in Psalm 69, it meant to burn up. And so what we see here is the disciples saying, this guy is literally eaten up. He is burned up. He is absolutely consumed by zeal for his father's house. Now that sounds exactly like something you would expect someone to say about Jesus, right? Who, did he come to say his own words? No, he says, I came to speak the words of my father. Did he come to do his own will? No, he came to do the will of his father. So what would it be? What would he be consumed with? What would he be eaten up by? What would be that fire that consumed him? Of course, zeal for his father. Zeal for his father's way, zeal for his father's will, zeal for his father's words, and zeal for his father's house. So when he sees his father's house turned in to this money machine by the religious establishment, Jesus says absolutely, categorically, no. You, your animals, your coins, out. You're done. Because that's not my father's way. And this is my father's house. Man, kind of got to say, I would like to have seen that firsthand, right? What an event. So, of course, people witness this. And they're like, hey, small town rabbi, guy from Nazareth. After, after all, what's the saying? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Small town kind of nobody rabbi. Uh, can we see your credentials for why, you're, why you think you're able to do this? Why in the world do you think you can come in and wreck it? Can't we just all get what we want to get? Let's have the celebration. Let's remember the deliverance from slavery. Let's let all these two million people have a wonderful time off from work and the norm and this great worship experience. And by the way, we can make a lot of money too. So why, how, how can you do what you've done? So they ask him in verse 18, if you can pick back up in the text, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Remember that word sign? We talked about that last week. Remember in verse 11? That was the first of the signs that Jesus did. So they're saying it's that same word. The same word is used here by John. Simeon, it means an indication, a mark, a, a token. It's something, as I said last week, by which a person or thing is distinguished from others and is known. In other words, who are you? What distinguishes you? What gives you the right to do this? Jesus gives an interesting answer. He says to them in verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now, when Jesus said this, it would have been regarded as blasphemous to the Jews, especially to the Jewish aristocracy like Annas and all of his tribe of priests that would have been controlling this, this multi-million dollar you know, money machine that was the temple and everything that went along with it. 
So when Jesus said this, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, it would have been understood as, as blasphemy. And they say to him uh, someone in, somewhat indignantly, right? In verse 20, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? He's talking here about not the temple that he's in, but the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body in verse 21. So just as the lamb, right? We had the old lamb, which was sacrificed every year. Now we have the new lamb that takes away the sin of the world. We have the jars of water, which is the old covenant, the ceremonial washings. Now we have the new wine of the blood of Jesus. And now we have the temple the old way. And now we have Jesus talking about the temple in the new way. Something, John does something very interesting. Up in verse 14, when, he, when, when we're first introduced to what's happening here, in verse 14 it says, in the temple, Jesus found people selling these things. He uses the word hieron. Now, hieron is the Greek word for the entire temple complex. So think of it like our entire campus, the road, the grass, all of the buildings, right? The entire complex. So for the temple, it meant the whole thing. The whole sacred structure, the, the buildings, the balconies, the, port, the porticos, the courts, everything. But when we get down to verses 19, 20, and 21, John uses a different word for temple. He uses the word naas. And naas refers to the, the sacred sort of edifice itself, consisting of two things. The first thing is what's known as the sanctuary or the holy place. The sanctuary or holy place was restricted for priests alone. And not only did it include the holy place, but it also included what's known as the most holy place, or sometimes we refer to it as the holy of holies. That was a place that only the high priest would have been able to go into, and only once a year on what's known as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, where he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of his nation. When Jesus says... This temple, that, that, that when John says he was speaking about the temple of his body, Jesus is using now the reference of that holy place. Why is that? Because what did the Jews believe? They believed in that holy place and especially in that holy of holies. What was it? It was the dwelling place of God. And so when Jesus is speaking about raising something up in three days and identifying it with his own body, he is saying to us that in me is the fullness of the dwelling of the Almighty. You want to know who God is? He is here. I am here. And so this is a very dramatic and powerful statement that Jesus is making that's alluding, of course, to his resurrection, that the temple of his body, and by the way, this same word, naas, for temple, it's what Paul uses when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and says to them that their bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Same word, the same one that, that Jesus used as he referred to his body as the temple that would be raised after three days. Now look at what happens with the disciples in verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Remember this idea that all of these things are ha that are happening, the lamb, the logos, the light, the life, the word, the Lord, all of these things are driving people so that they would believe in him, trying to deepen the faith, trying to have the same thing to happen for everyone's life that happened in the life of those first followers who witnessed that miracle, those first disciples, and they believed in Jesus' name. In fact, more of it seems to occur, at least it seems to in verse 23. 
Check it out. It says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Here's something else that John wants us to understand about this lamb, this light, this life, this logos, this, this new wine, this one who is the temple. He can see the signs here that Jesus is doing that are referred to in verse 23. But John, it seems to indicate that it's going to take more than believing in a miracle to become a follower of Jesus. Because look at the next two verses. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them. By the way, that's the same word, pistueo, the same word, entrust, commit, believe, same word used in the, in the verse above, in verse 23. Jesus, many believe, pistueo, in his name. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself, pistueo, pistueo, to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not any, need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. These people may have believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them because he recognized, and, and one commentator called them unsaved believers. Again, to, to, to believe, uh, to, to, to respond to a miracle was one thing, but to surrender one's life to Jesus in faith was another, it seems that John is indicating. Do you remember what Jesus told Thomas? When Thomas wanted to see the, thing, the holes in his hands and, and, the, and the hole that the spear put in his side, what did he say to Thomas? Stop doubting and believe. You believe because you see. Blessed is the one who believes but does not see. And so, w w though there are many people who responded to these signs and again, and responding to the miracles, and uh, again, these signs are used by God and used by John to portray Jesus as the one to put your faith in. But simply to respond as a, to a miracle does not always equate to saving faith. That's what the last point that John seems to make from this passage because it's clear that Jesus had spotted them out as counterfeit believers. They may have seen the miracle, and it may be a starting point for their faith, but it was clear that they had not yet surrendered to him. So what's the point of this one? Like we talked about last week, the point of the wedding, uh, the miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee was that people would, those, that small group of followers, would believe in him, would deepen their faith in him. As we encounter this Jesus now, Doing, giving us another sign of who he actually is. Giving, giving us another distinguishing feature of his true identity. It is all about trying to invite us to trust, to believe, to commit, and to surrender to him. Who is this guy? He has the right and the courage to challenge the religious establishment because he recognizes they're not facilitating a relationship with his father. They're getting in the way of people having a, a relationship with his father. And what was Jesus all about? He was all about creating the way that people could return to his father, not creating a blockade, the right kind of money, the right kind of animal, and all of that to actually keep them from his father. Jesus has the right and the courage to do that. And he invites us in all of these ways that he is revealing himself to us. And let's not miss that, right? 
We talked about that last week, the power and the necessity of revelation. As he's revealing his identity to us, as he's pulling back that curtain, as he's showing us through the wedding uh, miracle, as he's showing us through this event in the temple who he really is, he's inviting us to trust in him fully and completely. And so that same response as we asked for last week, John points us to again this week. Is he who he says he is? Is he who John said he was? Is he who John the baptizer said he was? Is he the word? Is he the life? Is he the light? Is he the lamb? Is he that new wine? Is he that new temple? And if so, then we respond in faith and commitment and surrender to him as Lord. That's just the first couple chapters of John. And he's already confronted us with so much and such powerful truth about this one known as Jesus of Nazareth. If you're watching online, as we oftentimes try to say and remind you that if there's any, at any point during today's service, and especially now as we kind of wrap up, you'd like to talk to someone about uh, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. We certainly invite you to click on the links that are dropping in the feed there. And that'll take you out into a conversation with one of our staff members. And uh, we'd love to connect with you about uh, how you can have that relationship and or if you just have questions. So if we're still online and you're watching, uh, feel free to go. I guess got the thumbs up. Go ahead and do that. And for the rest of us, I invite you to consider taking that step of faith. I don't know where each and every one of you are at in leaning into that deeper faith with Jesus deeper faith in Jesus. But I want to encourage you today as we sing this last song, and in fact, the words of the song are going to be an invitation to do just that. And as we sing that last song, I hope those words, again, aren't just ones on a screen or in your mouth, but they're actually the intent of your heart. Why don't you stand with me if you're going to go ahead and stand while we sing that last song too. If not, take it, go ahead and keep your seats. I'll pray, and then Rich and Emma will lead us. Father God, we thank you for showing us who you are by giving us your son. Jesus, we thank you for your, your bold courage and your, and your righteous indignation against the extortion and the exploitation that was happening right there in your father's house. I pray, God, that we would see you for who you really are, and that we would surrender to you in your true identity as, as the one who, is, who desires to be Lord of our entire lives. As we sing this last song together, God, may it be the intent of our heart. May it be our prayer. Make it real for us, God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.